We have several readings this morning from the book of Luke, chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia and Traconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way up for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the, smooth, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. Since the fourth century, Christians of many traditions have set aside a period of time leading up to Easter for focused spiritual development. And so here we are in the first Sunday of Lent. Now, if you maybe missed last week or weren't paying attention to the calendar and thought, oh, shoot, I missed it. I can't participate this year. Well, it's not too late. You can just start now. It's all right. One of the things that we do during the season of Lent is we encourage people to give something up to create space in your life uh, to meet with God or connect with God in a new way. And if you do this, if you try this discipline, you'll discover that as soon as you commit to giving something up, it's like your brain fixates on this one thing. It's like it's all that you think about all day long. It's like, I want this thing. I, I can't look. I, I'm looking forward to this thing. I miss this thing. Um, and I, I was reminded of this quote from Miroslav Volf. He writes that whether we are aware of it or not, in all our longings, in one way or another, we also long for God. And I think that's one of the beautiful things that giving something up does for us, is it creates a longing in us. And we long for coffee, or we long for dessert, or whatever it is that we long for. But in that longing, there's something that reminds us that we also long for God. Well, this morning, we continue to walk with Jesus at the onset of his public life, as narrated by Luke, paying close attention to how right from the start, his life pointed to the cross. So our reading begins with John, the last in the long line of prophets who challenged the power structures of their day and called people to live in obedience to God. 
John was the last in this line. Like the headline I read this week about the last blockbuster store on the planet. Apparently the second to last store closed and now there's only one remaining. And some of you are like, what's Blockbuster? And that's fine. But the rest of us remember what it was like to go into a store and browse for videos and pick a movie to watch. Uh, but apparently we're just down to one. And so I read this little article. There was once more than 9,000 Blockbusters in the US and now we're down to one in the entire world. Uh, and so in the article, there was another photo uh, and this is the caption. It said, this is what it looks like inside the Blockbuster video store in Bend, Oregon. And I was like, why did you need that photo? We all know what it looks like inside a Blockbuster, but it's like this nostalgia. It's like you're looking and it's like, oh yes, I remember that. I remember that feeling. Well, reading Luke chapter three is like peering into that one remaining blockbuster. We get one final look at this, this long line of prophets, these people that God would call and send to give this message to his people. And it's like John is the last one that we can look at in this line. While the prophets always spoke to the events of their own day, there was a consistent reminder that God would one day act on behalf of his people in a definitive way. And so here in Luke chapter 3, there's actually a reference back to an earlier prophet, Isaiah. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight and rough ways smooth and all mankind will see God's salvation. And so this is what John did. He picked up this, this calling, this mantle of leadership that Isaiah had spoken of centuries earlier. Make straight paths for him, for the Messiah. Get the people ready for the Messiah, God's, the, the Savior, God's people to come into the world. And so John did that. He went into all the country, Luke says, around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I know that it can be somewhat passe to talk about sin, but this kind of repentance, it's not... It's not a simply negative where we think about regret and guilt and shame only. It implies making a decision to turn around, to face a new direction. You see, regret and guilt and shame, they may have their place, but they're not likely to get us to the place God wants us to be. And so any talk about sin that focuses on those elements alone falls short of where we want to get to. The Greek word for repentance is this word that would be transliterated metanoia, and it can be translated a number of different ways, but essentially means a transformative change of heart. Specifically, it often refers to a spiritual conversion, but there's this idea that there is a change that happens in our lives, but it's a change of heart that is directly linked to action. And one of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, uh, he, on a couple of different occasions, kind of translates the passages where Jesus uses this exact same work at the beginning of his ministry. So John talks about repenting, and Jesus used the same word. And Dallas Willard changes it slightly in his translation just to help us understand what it means when we use this word. Matthew chapter 4, 17, he translates, Rethink your life in light of the fact that the kingdom of the heavens is now open to all. So rethink your life. That's what this word repent means. Or Mark 1.15, he translates, review your plans for living and base your life on this remarkable new opportunity. That's what it means to repent. It doesn't mean just feel sorry for something or stop doing something. It's taking this evaluation of your life and saying, I want to do something better. I want to do more. I want to live the way that God created me to live. And so I'm going to have to, yes, yeah, stop one thing, but I'm going to have to start another thing. This metanoia, this repentance is both reflective 
and active. We think about it, but then we act on it. We use our head and we use our hands. And so the starting point of the journey to the cross is our weakness, our falling short, and our need for change. And far from being bad news, I actually think that this is one of Christianity's great gifts to the world. I think we live in a, in a world, in a culture where you can't make mistakes, where any kind of failure or wrongdoing is, people are chastised for it. And, and I think Christianity says, yeah, we all make mistakes, actually. We're all broken. Not only are we allowed to admit to our mistakes, confess our sins, and lament our misdirected lives, but we're actually encouraged to do so. Admit it. Call your life for what it is. It's okay. This is part of life. And we're encouraged to get to this place where we say it's time for this self-directed life of mine to come to an end and for a new life to begin. And the method that John used to symbolize this profound change was water baptism. Now, water baptism takes all kinds of shapes and forms. I mean, it could happen in a river like it did with John and Jesus. It could happen in a horse-watering trough. It could happen with a fire hose. I was baptized in a backyard swimming pool. I've baptized someone in a backyard pond. I mean, it, it can happen anywhere. But the idea is that there's this symbolism that comes along with this process. If you, you're, you're ready to change the way your life, okay, well, it's time to begin again. And I was reading this article this week in Christianity Today uh, by, from Tish Harrison Warren, and she was talking about um, ancient Yonic baptismal fonts. Now, to be honest, this is the first time I heard the word Yonic. I didn't really know what it means. But it essentially means shaped like a particular woman's body part. And she was saying that basically, like in the early church, the idea that, that baptismal fonts were, were often shaped like a womb or some other things in order to remind people that what's happening here is a rebirth. Just like you were born, you're actually being reborn. You're coming back out into the world again. You're breaking the water and entering into a new life. And it makes us a little uncomfortable. We're like, oh, this is awkward. What's he talking about here? Can we, can we change the slide, please? Um, but the reminder is that this is dramatic new change that is happening in our life. We, are get, we get a fresh start. We get to start again. Tish Harrison Warren writes, the waters of baptism initiate us into a life of obedience to the God of love and mercy revealed in Scripture. It is a life of painful redemption, of unrelenting, transformative grace that teaches us to repent and sets us free from sin to be born again and again and again and again and again into new life in Christ. That's good news. That's good news. A life of faith demands that we acknowledge our shortcomings and invites us to do so publicly, just like the crowds who came to John to be baptized. And so I want to invite you, if this is something that you're thinking, I need to do this, to, to talk to me, and I'd like to do a baptism service sometime, maybe even, I'm thinking maybe even Easter Sunday, if we can work it out, um, but I'd like to do that. And so if this is something you think, I need to do this in my life, I'm ready to make this kind of public, communal um, act, talk to me, please. But of course, baptism itself isn't a one-shot deal. It's not like, okay, we make this change once and that's all there is to it. It provides a template for our faith. It's a constant, as Tish Harrison Warren says, being born again and again and again and again. We're constantly living in the pattern of our baptism. And this is why every morning when we gather here and we have our call to worship, the first prayer that we pray ends, have mercy on us and renew our faith this morning. Every Sunday, this repentance and this new life begins again. Well, if we go back to the story, Luke 3.16, John answered the people because they were asking, they were wondering, hey, are you the Messiah? Are you the one who's going to come and save God's people? Are you the one that for centuries we've been looking forward to? And he said, I baptize you with water, 
but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. I was saddened to hear in the news this week of the passing away of King Kong Bundy. Um, He was a professional wrestler when I was a kid growing up, and there was nothing more exciting than kind of the Saturday night main event and, and watching these wrestlers go at each other. And, and the next slide shows like this, this cage match between King Kong Bunny and Hulk Hogan. And for this was like one of the highlights of my childhood, watching this incredible event. Just like, and I was thinking about it. I was like, why, do, why does wrestling matter so much to young kids? Like, why does it matter? And I think there's something about like when we think about like power, someone who's strong is like at the top of the food chain. Like Hulk Hogan, these guys, they are at the top. Of the, they're the peak and pinnacle of life to a 10-year-old, right? There's nothing more impressive than being powerful. But power isn't something that only 10-year-olds admire, is it? Some of us in this room probably admire power too. Now, we might not admire the power of guys in tights, but we might think about the power that people accumulate maybe through money or fame or military prowess or beauty or authority or education or violence, like however it is, people who are powerful, you can get power all kinds of different ways. And we tend to look up to people who have it. But if we allow ourselves to be enamored by power, we'll soon be chasing it ourselves. The Catholic writer Henry Nouwen says, one of the greatest ironies in the history of Christianity is that its leaders constantly gave in to the temptation to power. Political power, military power, economic power, or moral and spiritual power even though they continued to speak in the name of Jesus, who did not cling to his divine power, but emptied himself and became as we are. He's like, all through the history of the church, people have forgotten that when we chase after this power, we're doing the exact opposite thing that Jesus did. In Luke 3, 21, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Think about this. This is the Son of God who is doing this thing that is supposed to resemble or symbolize this repentance. John, he blushed at it. He's like, I don't think you should be doing this, Jesus. And Jesus like, yeah, I want to do this too. The way that Jesus understood power was dramatically different from how we think about it. And I don't think it's, it's found any, worded any better than in Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 2. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And before I finish that passage, I want to fast forward to Luke chapter 7. In this story, Jesus had just healed a centurion servant and he'd raised a widow's only son from the dead. And word was getting around, and word got around to John the Baptist. It's one of the things that's always kind of struck me about the New Testament. I kind of thought that once John and Jesus connected at the Jordan River there, uh, that they should have gone out together. They would have been this great team working together, but they, they didn't. John continued to point to Jesus, and Jesus went and did his own thing. But here John is wondering what's going on. And so the Bible says uh, um, that he sends, John sends some of his people to Jesus. And when the man, man came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? Can you sense the disappointment in the question? Like John's out there, he's like, one more powerful than I is coming. And he's like, no, I'm paving the way, I'm making the crooked path straight. And then Jesus is healing people, he's raising people from the dead, he's doing all of these incredible things. And John's like, mm, I don't know if this guy's the one. This wasn't what I expected. 
This wasn't the, the kind of power that I thought the Messiah would, would bring. So maybe, actually, he's not the one that we were waiting for. Or how about Luke chapter 9? where some Samaritans were not particularly welcoming, and the disciples, James and John, they see this, and they ask Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? And Jesus rebukes him. He's like, what's the matter with you people? That's my paraphrase. In the words of Henry, now in power, offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. The disciples are like, oh, they're not being welcoming? Let's destroy them. Jesus is like, What? Have you listened to anything I've said? It's easy for even the closest followers of Jesus to misunderstand his mission. It was true then, and it's true today. Now, at risk of getting too close to Easter, John 19, this this incredible picture when Jesus is brought before the Roman governor, Pilate, and he's silent. He won't answer his questions. And then Pilate said, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or crucify you? And then Jesus speaks up. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. It's profound. Pilate's like, I've got this power. And Jesus is like, you've got nothing. The power to kill me is nothing. John, the Baptist, the disciples, Pilate, all misunderstanding Jesus' relationship with power. But he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, Paul continues, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Man, that's good news. So I had a great interaction this week. Uh, actually, last week, I was uh, just about to leave the church on Friday afternoon. I was just grabbing something from the hallway back, back here, and I heard a knock at the door by the kitchen. And I was like, who's knocking at the door? So I go over, and there's this older man there, and I open the door. And as I was opening the door, I'm like, why am I doing this? Like, I'm about to leave for the day, and I'm just like, why am I doing this? What does he want? What does he need? Is there going to be trouble? Am I going to be here all afternoon? Like, this is the thought that goes through my head. And he comes in and just starts talking to me. And he's got this picture in his hand in a little laminated folder. And he shows me this picture, and he says, I'm trying to figure something out. This is just how the conversation begins. He's like, I'm trying to figure something out. I'm trying to find this building, but I can't find it. And I'm wondering if if this is the same building that's in this picture, or, or if you know anything about this. And I was like, oh, I know about this. This is a good story. And so I, I invited him to my office, and we sat down, and I started telling him the story. So basically, this picture was taken in 1948, and on the left is Zig Tuckums. He's the old man who came and visited me, and his brother. And they lived in this building, um, which was a boy's home, an orphanage, um, in 1948. Um, the, this home initially was actually the mansion of the Seagram family of the Seagram distilleries. Um, so they donated it to the province, and it became a boy's home. And then that kind of, that kind of uh, system was kind of wrapping up in the late 50s. And so the province sold the building and the property to St. John's, whose previous building had burned down in a fire in 1959. And so they tore the building to the ground, and they, and they rebuilt this church building. So you're kind of sitting where that building was when this picture was taken in 1948. And so I'm telling this, this story. And actually, if you look really close, you can't read it here, but on the, on the tree there in the background, there's like a little white sign, and it says 20. It's so cool. And he was asking me, he's like, do you think that these trees could be the same trees on the front yard? And I'm like, absolutely they are. 
Look at where they're positioned. Little slope of the hill. I was like, this is, this is incredible stuff. So we had a good time reminiscing there together. And I was thinking, that, like, I love this picture. This is like one of my new favorite pictures now. And the reason is that, for me, this photo captures the hiddenness of the emerging future. It's like right there in that place was all of this and all of us. But no one knew it, of course. They were just a couple of boys getting their photo taken outside of this orphanage that they lived in. But there was all of this unfolding future that was yet to be revealed. You see, even as John the Baptist was pointing to the power that Jesus would have, this guy's got power. He was pointing even further out, beyond what he was capable of seeing at the time. John didn't know what he was talking about, I don't believe, when he said he will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. John didn't know what that meant. But he knew that something was coming on the other side of Jesus. And so Luke wrote actually two books in the Bible. He wrote the gospel that bears his name, but he also wrote the book of Acts, which tells the story of the beginning of the church. And I want to read Acts verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 4 to 8. So this is after Jesus' resurrection, and at one occasion, Luke writes, while he was eating with them, his disciples, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized you with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. John never got to live to see this. He was beheaded years earlier. He never got to see this moment. But in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they went together, they asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're like, finally, the power we've been waiting for, he's going to throw down the hammer and we're going to take over the Romans. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Even after Jesus' death and resurrection, his disciples still have their minds on earthly power. But Jesus hints that the power that they're going to receive, this Holy Spirit, is going to be tied to representing him in the world. You're going to receive power, and then you're going to go out, and you're going to tell the whole world about me. He had also spoken to his disciples earlier about this promise. John 14, 25, and 26. All of this I have spoken while, while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I've said to you. In John 16, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Isaiah pointed to John, the voice of one calling in the wilderness. John pointed to Jesus, one more powerful than I. And Jesus points to the Holy Spirit, the one who will go out with you, the one who will remind you of everything I've said. And he Wright says, a new sort of power will be let loose upon the world, and it will be the power of self-giving love. This is the heart of the revolution that was launched on Good Friday. You cannot defeat the usual sort of power by the usual sort of means. If one force overcomes another, it's still force that wins. Rather, at the heart of the victory of God over all the powers of the world, there lies self-giving love. That's good news. So let's go back to Luke chapter 3. The moment depicted by our second pane of stained glass here. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. The empowerment of the Holy Spirit tied into this self-giving love that Jesus was empowered with and that we have at our disposal because of the Holy Spirit that God sent us. What does it mean for us to wield power today? 
Is it something we can handle? Richard War questions it. He says, it seems to me the only people who can handle power are those who don't need it too much. Those who can equally let go of it and share it. In fact, I'd say that at this difficult moment in history, the only people who can handle power are those who have made journeys through powerlessness. Most others seem to abuse it. Last week I came home and Melissa was watching this uh, Netflix special on Jerry Seinfeld's comedy, and, and the moment I walked in, he had this little bit where he's like, he's like, you know, everyone says that the president's crazy. Everyone's talking about the president's crazy. He says, of course the president is crazy. He says every president is crazy. He said, you have to be crazy to have the thought one day, you know what, I think that of all the people in the world, I should be the leader of the free world. If you have that thought, you're crazy. So every president's crazy. Right? Power. It's tempting to draw the conclusion that power is inherently bad, and I don't want you to misunderstand. That's not what I'm saying. It's not the case. But let's go back to what Rohr says about those who can handle power. He says it's those who have made journeys through powerlessness. The people who can hold that kind of responsibility are people who know what it's like to have no power. Jesus in Luke 7 said, I tell you, among those born of woman, there is no one greater than John, John the Baptist. And yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. The one who is least is greater because it's out of our brokenness and our weakness and our frailty and our powerlessness that we are open to the the powerful, self-giving love that God wants to give. This is why we start with repentance and forgiveness. Powerlessness is a prerequisite to the power of self-giving love that God wants to give us by his Holy Spirit. So Jesus' baptism was just the beginning of his redefinition of what it means to be great, to have power. And it pointed to a time when he would not only demonstrate the power of self-giving love in the world, but to a time when he would eventually pass that same power on. So I'll wrap up with a quote that I began with from Miroslav Volf. He said, in all our longings in one way or another, we also long for God. Apart from God, with the earth of our existence unchanged from its sun, the deeper meaning of our lives eludes us. And Jesus' journey to the cross reminds us of the deeper meaning of our lives. In Lent, we learn to let go as we cling tightly to God. And it's in the letting go that we receive what we truly need from God and are invited to partner with him for the sake of the people and the world that he loves. I invite you to stand and we'll close in prayer. God, this story is just filled with so much good news. There's something in us that wants to avoid admitting our wrongdoings, our mistakes, our failures. There's something in us that wants to avoid going through times of pain and trial and struggle. But we learn as we, as we read the story of Jesus that that is the way to true power. And so God, in the season of Lent, we, we let go of our clamming, clamorings after things that we don't need. And we embrace the one thing that we need, which is your presence in our lives, which is your, the empowerment of your Holy Spirit to send us out into the world, to love people the way you have loved us. So send us out. As we gather around our tables in conversation, use us to stretch and challenge one another. As we go about our week, use the moments of, of hunger or longing that we have during the week to remind us of our hunger and our longing for you. Send us out in peace. Amen.